0: it's Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, all our posted conversations will contain completed contents from our year-end interviews, edited only slightly for flow and background noise. This conversation is with our good friend Hannes Hallstrom. Hannes discusses some of the research, most of which epidemiology based, coming from his team at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. Just a reminder, Surfing the Nash Tsunami will have next day coverage of the two presentation days at Nashtag, posting the Friday session around 6pm Eastern U.S. time on Saturday, and the Saturday session around 6pm Eastern US time on Sunday, and here's Hannes. So this afternoon, as our interview series continues, we're here with our friend Hannes Hochström. Uh, the purpose of this series of interviews is to talk a little bit about folks' impressions in general of the year 2022 in fatty liver disease and then of some of the work that they've been doing this year that has made a contribution to the field. So Hannes, first, just general impressions of the year in fatty liver and areas where you feel we've made progress or have reasons for encouragement, if any areas where you feel that where we, you wish we had more reason to be encouraged. Hannes Hochström.
1: Yeah, thank you. So I think 2022 was a good year for an Day research. research. Sure, we saw some sort of failed trials which feels like standard now in this field but I also think there's you know with all the phase 3 trials now about to read out in this year or next I think there's actually some relevant hope and I think the mechanisms by which with the drugs we are now trying to me feels quite a bit more realistic to actually work in the general population
0: It's an interesting comment when you say realistic are there specific mechanisms you have in mind and what makes you use the word realistic to define them?
1: So I always think about NAFLD like a public health problem and that you're sort of overloading your system with nutrients. And one major way we need to combat this is to reduce the general load on the metabolic system. And this is my personal opinion, but going through a a specific molecular pathway might not do it. There are so much redundancy in these systems. So I think a general pathway would be to, to try to reduce the general burden on the system. And that's what we're trying to do now with the drugs that are in the late phase three trials with, for instance, of course, GLP-1s, which is sort of leading the way, but also perhaps with resmeter, we'll probably know more in a few weeks, but quite a lot in FLD. And, and we've developed a nice population-based cohort of liver disease patients that we are doing a lot of studies on. So that really sort of have turned the wheel quite around quite a lot in my research group.
0: Why don't we follow that wheel and step into your patient cohort and studies of various things that you've produced this year?
1: Yeah, sure. So we, I mean, in not all, all the listeners maybe are aware Aware of the registers that are available in the Nordic countries, such as Scandinavia and Sweden. So we have this tax funded system where essentially healthcare is generally free of charge except some smaller fees so you have less problems with selection bias. And then we have rather accurate registers for finding people when they are hospitalized, when they go to their specialty doctor like their gastroenterologist or their hepatologist. We can identify you know uh, prescribed drugs automatically from the pharmacies and so on. And all of these data I think um, data points can be merged through some unique identifiers that we have for each person meaning and then we can also identify everybody with a specific diagnosis but we can also track them across these different registers and see if they develop comorbidities if they die if they get cancer so on and so on so it's not as granular as you would like it we mostly don't have any lab data and so on but at least you have very few problems with selection bias and you can really capture the whole population the burden of the disease so for that using that data source we put together a large cohort of everybody in Sweden who had a diagnosis of really any liver disease going back to the 60s so it's quite a big cohort around 350,000 people and then we can identify them look at really anything who with the D developed cancer or who with D got prescription of GLP-1s or so on and so forth and then we can also link them to the general population to see what is there really the is there a difference in, in cardiovascular outcomes if you compare it to the general population so a multitude of studies this can be done in that cohort and we started to feel it a little bit and uh, yeah, we have a lot of projects going on and some some are already published and finished. So, of what you've published
0: in the past year, which one or two would you like to focus on in terms of what we've learned and what you think it's going to mean for the field going forward?
1: I think one other thing I want to highlight is some of the work some of my rather excellent postdocs have been doing who are really good with epidemiology and biostatistics and I feel so fortunate to be working uh, with these sort of young and, and energetic people. But my Professor Jing Shang, she had a paper in hepatology this year where we looked at, both we looked at risk for cardiovascular disease, but also risk for mortality after cardiovascular disease. And another a little bit innovative way, which we haven't seen so much in this field, was also trying to estimate the loss in life expectancy in people with NAFLD. So in essence, we identified everybody with diagnosis of NAFLD in Sweden, looked at the risk that they had to develop cardiovascular disease, and then you compare the risk of dying, after a cardiovascular event to that of people without NAFLD that had also had a cardiovascular event. And, And strikingly, what we could see was that patients with NAFLD, they have a much higher rate of developing CVD events, which we already knew. But after the CVD event, there's no difference in overall mortality, actually, if you compare it to people that did not have at least known NAFLD diagnosis at the time of their CVD event. Now, of course, those people might all have undiagnosed NAFLD. So there's a lot of caveats when you do these kind of studies as well. Well, at least that sort of points out that uh, if you have patients with, with cardiovascular disease events might not be necessarily to go and lean, uh, go and see if they have an FLD at that point in time and the second part of that paper was that we tried to estimate the loss in life expectancy we found rather strikingly that in general if you have an FLD you can expect to live around three years shorter than if you don't have this diagnosis if you compare it to the general population and that loss in life expectancy was actually accentuated depending on when you got the diagnosis so so the younger age you have your diagnosis of NAFLD, the more you can expect to have a drop in life expectancy. And that sort of tells us that it's more, might be more relevant to look for NAFLD, relatively at least, to look for NAFLD in the younger populations, whereas if you are coming up to an advanced age, 70, 75, 80 plus, then it might not be super relevant to look for NAFLD, which is rather logical that you don't have so much time to be left on.
2: Jörn Schattenberg. This is fascinating, to be honest, and again, congratulations for you and your team for putting this together. It aligns with the clinical observation that liver disease is slowly progressive, and if you have a hepatic steatosis uh, at the age of 80, it's not the same as if you have it in young years. And it kind of aligns with the BMI story where uh, towards the end of your life, it pays off to have a little higher BMI than actually your mortality is not quite, uh, it's not L-shaped, right, uh, relationship. So that is nice. We've discussed this a number of times, and my question to you is, of course, you're using codes, and w- what is your perception, having worked with that database so intensively, what's your perception of which type of NAFLD patient is coded versus how many do we miss or how could those patients who are not coded fit into that? You think that we miss the early ones, the late ones, or is there a certain pattern or you think it's, I mean, it's obviously difficult to say no answer, but maybe what's your gut feeling on this?
1: Yeah, it's of course, you really need to work with these data sets to understand the caveats and the limitations, but also the strengths. But in general, so we capture everybody who have a diagnosis in specialty care. And What we see, if we used to, if we look at the incidence, we see a strikingly increasing number. Of diagnosis during the later years. I do not think that reflects the true incidence increase, but it's more reflected that clinicians are now more and more recognizing NAFLD. So it's difficult to say that it's a true increase in incidence or prevalence. And as for your question about the severity, I think definitely we do, I mean, these are patients coming to a specialty doctor, so it's unfortunately not including primary care, but when we look at it, we see that around 5% or something like that have a diagnosis of cirrhosis, but I would also fear a it's a little bit underdiagnosed. So maybe some sloppy clinicians only make the diagnosis of D and don't care about making the diagnosis for, for cirrhosis. Who knows? So there are some caveats there as well, but definitely you probably capture the sort of sicker population as compared to the full D spectrum, which is estimated to be somewhere around 15 to 20 percent in Sweden.
3: Louise Campbell. From your data sets, can you tell what tends to come first? Is it metabolic conditions in relation to NAFLD? And does NAFLD come first and metabolic in the data set? Is it established later? And if so, can you date the precursor to each one with the biopsy and the diagnosis of NASH? Because obviously NASH takes a long time and most people to develop. My thinking being that if you then get a metabolic condition and you've already got NASH, it's probably been building during rather than that thing. Were you able to tease out that from the data set? That's
1: a good question, Louise. We haven't actually looked at that. As I said, there's so many questions we can ask to this sort of data set. But it's actually quite an interesting topic that we could explore further what is coming first, so to say. Another thing I want to highlight is that you can do this kind of register-based stuff and it gives you a, new, a nice coverage, but it shines, it stands out a little bit more when you connect more detailed data sets to these uh, registers. So you can, for instance, link your own research cohort to, to these registers and you can then get the potential for long-term follow-up. So we have done a few of those studies where we have you know, looked at that biopsies of patients with NAFLD uh, and, and uh, link them to these registers and that allows us for long term follow up. Then you have the granularity of the biopsy and you have lab tests and BMI and whatever that you want to, that you captured from the charts yourself or some coworker, and then you can get a long term follow up. And then you can also, what we're doing right now is collaborating with the Swedish Diabetes Register, which is quite remarkable. They capture 90% of everybody with type 2 diabetes or even more. So you can then, you have more granularity of the data such as BMI HP1, c levels and so on. So we're doing a study right now where we're looking at the number of comorbidities. So if you have uh, diabetes, plus minus hypertension, hyperlipidemia and so on, what happens uh, to the risk of liver, liver disease? Because we know already that it's patients with two, type 2 diabetes. We are more and more discussing should we screen them for liver disease? We have seen that the incidence of liver decompensation and liver cancer is more than twice as high in patients with diabetes. But there might be subgroups of patients with diabetes that where we should look even further. And so we're trying to tease that out. Should we look for, you know, people with age 50 plus or men versus women, uh, hypertension versus not having hypertension and so on. That is one um, product we're working on right now. And may- maybe not answering your question in-, in full, but but at least to some degree. No, but
3: it, but it is interesting when you talk about looking at the younger generation and NAFLD. And I think it is something that we miss because we're looking for end stage and fibrosis outcomes. I do think the younger generation are the ones in need because we are hosing money on a lot more younger people than we are on the minority of cirrhosis and fibrosis when you look at the figures and we to do the calculations. We miss the ones that are low cost individually but at high cost collectively. But we have the greatest opportunity to turn around their lives and increase their life expectancy and potentially keep them off the diabetes database <laughs> because I'm fairly sure there will be a fair few as you move on have crossed from the liver database and data set to the diabetes data set and certainly in the UK our data Our diabetes data sets are immaculate in their data recording throughout the country. I'm thinking
0: about reversing direction on that. If you take a look at the guidelines that are emerging, a common theme, at least in some of the recent guidelines, uh, ACE, for example, is not even to worry about whether a patient with diabetes has NAFLD per se, because the odds are that 70, 75, 80% of them do at the time that you identify diagnosis. So there, the issue is to go straight to taking a look for, for, the suggestion is uh, go straight to taking a look for fibrosis. Assume everybody has NAFLD. And then ask yourself, who, who's got national evidence of fibrosis? I'm wondering if as you pull the databases together, any data emerge on that subject? Because it seems that you get to take a look from both directions. It almost feels like kind of a 360-degree view of the patient. You can look at daffled through a diabetes window or diabetes through a NAFLD
1: window if you bring the data sets together. If we go back to screening, there are guidelines on who who should we screen or when should we start to think about screening. To be honest, I don't think we fully meet all of those criteria right now in the in the NAFLD uh, the field because one major criteria is that we should be able to intervene in some way and we of course we can't do that but the argument is if we talk about weight loss or exercise etc that i mean this is something these patients should do anyway and i don't think we have the data to support that knowing that you have NAFLD will will actually make the patient change the way they live maybe we are just argument against that could be that we are just introducing more more uh, harm that we are you know scaring these patients that you will get cirrhosis and so some things like that when we do get some kind of treatment for this disease. So I think we will end up in another situation. And actually, I think it's nice that we start to develop this thinking with screening on already now. So we have some, we don't have to start from scratch when we have something we can offer the patients. I'm not sure if that was an answer to, <laughs> to your question.
2: I mean, the question of screening is very interesting, Hannes. And I'm with you that we don't adhere to all the guidelines. Not all patients with diabetes are screened for NASH. And I mean, there are many reasons for that. As you're on, I think I'd like to revisit what we're actually screening for. You made the case that screening for steatosis in elderly might not be the right way. The historic data, and some of this comes from your group, uh, has very heavily focused on advanced fibrosis, uh, and we know there's liver mortality. But maybe you can give us your insight again, what's the role of NASH, and does NASH correlate to loss in life? And did you see a little bit of a swing that maybe not fibrosis is the only aspect that's important, or we we don't have that data yet? What's your view?
1: So unfortunately, if we look at this register-based things, we don't have the granularity where we can say that somebody has NASH or not, because of course you need a biopsy, and what we have seen is the number of biopsies are generally going down because we have replaced it with more non-invasive techniques, meaning that also you get some kind of bias because the biopsies that you do take these days, if you compare it to the 80s or 90s, they are probably more advanced, the more advanced cases. So it's difficult that you see you know a change in the prevalence or or, or proportion of patients having NASH and so on. Myself, having sat and, and looked at a lot of biopsies, it is unfortunately quite subjective, as we all know, and it's difficult to tease out the individual effect of. of of uh, NASH. My my thinking of this is currently that NASH is of course the thing that drives the inflammation and so on but but it's so difficult to capture meaning that it's maybe not even worth trying to capture because if if it's so difficult to measure it then we will end up in a tricky situation if we want to look at treatment response and, and so on. Of course it's still a very tricky situation to tease out what is the individual effect. We should go for something that is as simple as possible and that can give us a good estimation of risk so, we just got actually a paper accepted where we looked at trying to develop the FIB4 in a more meaningful way, or where we see that we can, if you break down the three main categories of FIB4, we looked at this in a population of around uh, 130,000 people with lab data and, and long term register follow up that we published on a little bit before. What we can see is you can actually break down these risk categories. So, you have the FIB4, you get the low, intermediate, and high risk group, and you can actually break down those subgroups in more meaningful groups where you can see well in the low group you actually have people that have more than 10-13% risk of developing cirrhosis within 10 years and within the high risk group you can go from something like 3% to 35% so you can identify quite meaningful subgroups where you should really start to look for fibrosis and then for liver disease maybe I can tell you the three parameters that we could use to improve the fit for you want to guess Jörn? Okay uh, that's a
0: good one um, um, let me see while well, well, you are is figuring this out. I want to tell you that we've done 160 something episodes of this, and this is the first time we've ever had a game show in the middle of a podcast. That's good, I'm right? Of bringing on, 30 I, and it caught me a little bit of a surprise. I'm thinking of bringing on 30 <laughs> seconds of game show music, the Jeopardy music from the U.S. Da, 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 <laughs> and then when we get to the end, you going to have to give an answer.
1: No, but I wanted to take something that was quite simple that we could use in the, in primary care and so on, but only age and, and presence of diabetes and gamma GT.
2: Gamma GT, that's interesting because that's linked to uh, cardiovascular in some uh, population-based studies,
1: right? Yes, it is. It's one of the things that insurance companies use because it's so linked to overall mortality and outcomes.
3: I was going to say, just on Jean's point, that there's also been some discussion in the literature recently about fit 4 detailing not only severe liver disease, but cardiac disease and doing this study. And comparing both cardiac outcomes and liver outcomes in those populations using the normal cutoffs. So it, <laughs> they're moving it towards cardiology now as well, from what I can see. I think Scott Isaac's been talking about it a little bit.
1: Yeah, what I was going to mention also that if we're honest, I think we also know that GT is an imperfect marker for, for alcohol use. So also highlighting something we, we've discussed more and more during 2022, and we finally started to agree upon as a field that of a minority, maybe 5-10% of these patients will, FLD, they'd probably drink a little bit too much and you have uh, alcohol that is at least driving part of the disease pathogenesis. So I think it was interesting that this marker came out as one of the more relevant ones. So there's a preliminary paper now accepted but we're going to try to dig even further into that field. I just hired a new postdoc who is a mathematician who is going to work his magic on that and I hope he will come up with something uh, interesting in the the coming year or so.
0: A moment ago I was wondering whether you were heading towards nomenclature, actually, because is when you start to think about where alcohol fits into this mix, you get back into that discussion about, so what is this disease in the first place and what are we calling it? We try to stay out of that conversation except when we stumble into it. It kind of feels like we're stumbling there. But do you have any thoughts on, say, the, what was discussed in Washington or where that discussion tends to be heading in the context of what's in your database?
1: I certainly agree that this is a problem and I think we should wait for the consensus to come to its conclusions. Again, you can argue that, yes, it's good with an umbrella term for this disease and there are a lot of diseases is out there, not only NAFLD where you have an umbrella term and there are different causes of the same sort of phenotype. So where that ends up, it's going to be interesting to, to look at. But it certainly is something to consider when you design these kind of studies. How can sure can you be that what's reported is actually what the patient had and so on. So always caveats with these kind of uh, things, yes. My additional
3: thought went back to something that um, Hannes said at the beginning, which was reducing the metabolic load. Are we? What, what would your feel be? Do we reduce the metabolic load and the load on the liver to help the other metabolic conditions or do we try and treat the other metabolic conditions to preserve the liver a bit of both or where would you suggest we go on that when we look at the medications?
1: I would be interested to hear more about the guys working in clinical trials and pharma is thinking about that but my perspective would be a bit more from the epidemiology side and maybe public health perspective that of course it's nicer to have something which has few side effects and that have both metabolic and liver specific. Effects. So we don't end up in a situation where we improve the risk for liver related outcomes, but increase the risk for for cardiovascular outcomes or or vice versa. But I think that is where the field is going right now. So it's uh, looking good, I think.
2: As long as we have Hannes with us, I was going to throw another question at him and see if he has an answer. Maybe there is no. No, I don't know. I was always struck by genetic differences between Northern and Southern Europe. And there's also some very different manifestations in terms of disease. For example, some inflammatory bowel disease, PSC seems to be more prone in, in, in northern countries. We haven't seen anything for that in NASH as far as I'm aware. Do you have any data on genetics that you compared Nordic countries with other or southern or is there anything you've worked on or uh, you've been uh,
1: aware of? We had one paper on genetics this year looking at the prospective uh, or predictive power of PNPLA3 and some other genotypes in a cohort study, but not with that particular question looking at you know a north-south gradient. Of course, we know that the proportion of patients with a, a powerful pmpla 3 genotype differs quite a lot, but that's old news, of course. But we, I guess, such a study where you suggest your analysis, you need quite a lot of DNA from different parts of the world and it's always one of the risks with working in a small country that even if you capture the whole country, it's still only around 10 million people. But you do have genetic information in the registries and parts, is that correct? Uh, no, uh, no, it depends on the registers you're referring to, but in general, no, we don't sort of genotype the, the full population. We be awesome if we could do that. But I think that GDPR guys would have something to say about that. But we do have, you know, when you have cohorts with genetic data, you can link it to uh, to the registries to, to look at the difference in outcomes, but not the other way around, you know. So one of
0: the interesting things that goes along with that, particularly, by the way, in a smaller country, is the interplay of microbiome and genetics. So we tend to associate PNPLA3 more with certain populations than others. Those populations, at least in some of the larger countries, say the U.S., tend to eat different diets. So you see higher levels of PNPLA3 in certain ethnic populations that have certain kinds of diet characteristics. I'm wondering if being in a smaller country, whether that either helps because you don't have as much diet diversity or you do have as much diet diversity. Well, if you do have as much diet diversity, can you do anything with that at all?
1: Oh, it's a good question. It's a really tough question. And I guess I have to invite, I have a dietitian in my group who is excellent in diets and different compositions. I think she would argue that even within a small country like this, there would be huge variances in the type of food people are eating in, you know, the urban areas or the rural areas, and also within cities, there are uh, immigrant communities where you eat quite different foods from other areas. And and of course, what what is the chicken and the egg? You know, is the microbiota affecting what you eat, or is what you, and so on. So The cause and effect always is a problem in these kind of studies. I think there are also studies, you know, looking if you measure the microbiota at two different times, points in the same individual, it shifts quite a lot. I I always read those kind of microbiota studies with a careful perspective.
2: And you're probably right on that. Based on the data Hannes has produced, we have so many questions and we have to realize that you can't always answer all questions with all databases, albeit, uh, you know, the absolute wealth of that data set.
1: Yeah, you can say that you can look at the big picture, you can look at the trends, you can look at the the burden of disease, you can look at how many people or proportion of the population are actually diagnosed with DEX and what's going on with those people. But if you want to go into mechanisms and re, you know, really know what happens on a molecular level, you're not going to go there. But I also think that's nice within the field that you have different research groups from across the world and focusing on different things. Some are using this kind of register-based stuff where you see the big picture. And other uh, research groups are trying to really develop new drugs. And then you have others trying to find out the mechanism. And I really feel super happy to be in this community where we all have the vision of trying to help our patients. Really appreciate that.
0: So one so of the places I was going? And this is actually comes out of having a market research background that is half between the two, is that if you've got a small population with, say, some distinguishing markers, lower levels of disease, for example, or different kinds of relationships and disease than you'd find, say, in a, in a Middle Eastern, North African population, is there anything we can infer at a population level about the differences between the two that, that is borne out epidemiologically? And that, that was kind of where I was going with the question about about pmpla 3 but I think the answer just might be no, that we need to dive into in a different way to get there. So, Hannes, what does 2023 hold for you and for your research?
1: Excellent question. So hopefully some more use of this data that we already have. And we also, in terms of granularity, we now have another big database coming out that we will delve even more into. It's most, we we can say that it's the majority of the people living in the capital of Sweden, Stockholm, that have an ALT value measured. So it's around 800,000 people or something like that, where we have a lot more granularity. So we're going to try to maybe repeat a few of the studies we have done, but with more data. Then as I started saying, I have a rather nice team now with a lot of younger researchers and I'm I'm employing a few more during the start of the next year that are joining us. So I'm really looking forward to working with them and trying to guide what we are going to look at in terms of developing maybe new models, how we can try to predict people developing severe liver disease, meaning that we can target the populations for screening and treatment. And then I'm, of course, also looking forward to meeting everybody on the many conferences that we are having. I'm, I'm not going to as many meetings as you guys, but I think I will hopefully see you at a few a few of them. Well, that'll be fantastic.
2: And I'm looking forward to it. And uh, every time I meet Hannes, they always have a big Swedish group also. And he Twitters about, you know, the big group gathering. And, and it looks like
1: uh, the Swedish are very fond of traveling and getting together. So a very social group, Hannes. We did something called a Nordic network where we tried to get all the junior people, not only from Sweden, but also from, from the other Nordic countries to get together and network and mingle. And been been difficult to, for the younger people people to to build their own networks during the COVID uh, situation. So it's a good opportunity for them to to meet other people in their situation. So I'm
0: reflecting Louise and Hannes when I was surprised that the two of you hadn't met face-to-face. The reason, specifically now that I remember, is because Hannes, the first time I met you was, you were meeting Jorn in a hotel lobby at London at Easel this year, and we were introduced. And I was there to meet Louise and her cohort of nurses that had done an episode with us back in February. So I had the two of you placed in my mind because I met you within five minutes, one way or the other, in a conversation with Louise and some of the nurses, and I guess it never crossed my mind, Louise, that you were a part of that conversation as well. But yeah, I think you're in that speaks powerfully to the importance of personal meetings, as, as you comment on frequently, and, and of all of us getting together, even if we even if we sometimes get to jumble faces, minds, and places a little bit at least by five, five minutes. Hannes, thank you so much for your time today. I, I come out of a marketing research background, which relies heavily on secondary. I find a lot of the epidemiology that you do really fascinating, and look forward to seeing more work from you from your head and seeing you at least one or two conferences.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for the kind invitation. I have to go on being on call tonight
0: thank you my friend so we'll talk soon thank you very much
2: please join us again tomorrow for the full conversation between yarn louise roger and their guest donna crier here on the surfing the nash tsunami podcast